Welcome to the pen and the yod. This week's Torah portion is Mishpatim. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshayamit Synagogue in Chicago sits down with author Jonathan Eig to discuss that you don't have to live in the past to learn from the past. Well, we've left the book of Genesis for sure. There are no more narrative stories. And the Torah is going to take a decided turn from the narratives, from the stories, to law. The sequel is never as good as the, <laughs> as the original. And the portion of Mishpatim is the earliest law code that we have. And it talks about issues like your ox goring, things that you know speak to our modern lives in remarkable ways, or an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And one could easily look through these laws and say... Gosh, these are really interesting and an ancient history lesson. But how relevant are they really? And for the rabbis, they are eternally relevant. All of the rabbinic laws are going to be built on the laws of the Torah. And this, by the way, the laws of Mishpatim is a very rich source for the rabbis. So the laws that they're going to develop regarding abortion or torts or how you treat another human being, whether you can charge interest how do you charge interest, to how you treat the poor. Everything is going to kind of flow from here. And I think this goes against our modern values, our yeah, modern so thinking. <laughs> There's a temptation to think, well, this is just as if some board of aldermen sat down and made some laws, and now we're stuck with them for all eternity. But I assume that that's not the case, that these are from God, not just from, uh, from our local uh, elected officials. Right? <laughs> I, think, I think that that's the, that's the understanding of the Torah. I think that Good, uh, God is not that. the alderman, <laughs> with all due respect to the alderman. I think that God, has, God has, a, has a broader view. But in their specificity, they do sound sometimes like ordinances, right? That's right, exactly right. They are remarkably specific about the everyday issues that face us. So we're not really talking about ritual here. We're not talking about keeping Shabbos or what we would call religious values. Rather, this is talking about how you take the garbage out. What do you do with your life? How do you live in this world? And Judaism is what you do 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. That's, what, that's the statement that's being made here. And how relevant is that? Well, that's the interesting part of it because some of them seem completely irrelevant to our lives. And yet, as you say... It's not about the code necessarily, about exactly how you take out the garbage. It's about the thought behind it and the meaning that it connotes. Right? And, and it is also our job to interpret the text and make it relevant. Look, when I have bar mitzvah families come through here and we sit and we talk about the portion of the week that their son or daughter is going to be chanting, when we get to a portion like like. Uh, Tazria Mitzorah about leprosy and skin illnesses, parents look at me like, are you kidding? Can't we skip and, this one? Can't we skip this one? Can't can I get a good one like Noah? How come I can't do that one? And my response is, is that our job, my job, the rabbi's job, and all of our jobs is to look at the Torah and find meaning. And that's what the rabbis are going to do. But it's antithetical to the way we think about things today. Everything is, well... If this is ancient, what can it really teach us? And if we look at Moses's worldview, which is decidedly different than our own, I'm not sure we could relate to Moses about a lot of things, whether it's women's rights, LGBTQ issues, and on and on it goes. So if I can't relate to Moses 
and his worldview, how can I possibly relate to these laws? That's right. And I think that's the job that's required of us. And, and I can relate to it. And this is not at all to compare my work, but I write books about people who are long dead. And I have to try to understand them through our modern lens, but also be fair and to judge them by the time in which they were living. And you can do that with anybody. Think about your grandparents. My grandfather would, would make all of these stupid, sexist, racist comments. What was he raised with? What, what, what did he grow up hearing? What did he understand about equality? He, how did he adapt to the civil rights movement when it was something that, that was difficult for him to comprehend because he hadn't lived with any of that? Even when I, when I wrote about Al Capone, I tried to tell people, think about it from his point of view. Imagine what it would be like to be the son of an Italian immigrant, your father's a barber who speaks no English, and you have this opportunity because of an American law banning alcohol to become rich, to establish yourself as, a, as an American, to climb that ladder, to live the American dream and buy a house for your family because somebody offers you a chance to sell beer. How, how bad does that seem, right? Not that bad. So try to figure out how somebody like that becomes Al Capone. Think about it in terms of his times. Sometimes it's fair to judge them through the modern lens. and Sometimes it's not, but ultimately you have to make the effort, at least, to understand them. Do we throw out whole tomes of wisdom literature because we've deemed it irrelevant, because we don't agree with people's stance on a particular issue? And, that, and, and, and let's not be cavalierly insensitive to people's issues. An African-American who looks at the past writings of Abraham Lincoln when it comes to race could easily say, I can't relate to this person. It's also the same person who wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. And on and on it goes. How can a gay person look at the book of Leviticus, which is discussing same-sex relations, and walk away feeling good about it? It's a challenge. So how do we live in balance? Can we call the wisdom without accepting the entire worldview? Are we sophisticated enough to do that? Can we take that step? We can call things out without rejecting them in toto. I think that's the challenge. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's in your willingness to accept the ambiguity, to embrace it, actually, as part of what makes life so lovely is that not knowing everything, not being able to judge everything, and accepting a little bit of uncertainty. And it's also, it's also acknowledging that there's wisdom in the past. Everything today starts today. If we go back to the 50s already and we're reading Jack Kerouac, okay, great, or Catcher in the Rye, but how far are we willing to go back in history? Can we read Shakespeare knowing Shakespeare's worldview as a man living in England at that time? Judaism is really based on the idea, and I think this is a, a, an important distinction, and it's really part of the ancient world, that the people who came before us were wiser than we were. And so you, where do you find knowledge? You find it by culling the past. Modernity is the exact opposite of that idea. We're more modern. We're more progressive. We're more technologically advanced. Therefore, we are the vanguard of knowledge, wisdom, etc., and I think that that's very limiting for us. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, I tend to th think that a lot of us, including me, look at it and say, well, we trust these old books, these old laws because they came from God, not because they came from people who were older and wiser. That's hard for me to get my head around. Well, I, th I think it's both. I think that the Torah itself is understood as coming from God, which is why the rabbis looked at every word and every letter to see what meaning it offers. But their worldview was that Moses is Moshe Rabbeinu. 
Moses our rabbi. I'm not at all sure that Moses would have understood or felt comfortable with, but what they were really saying was that, that Moses was our greatest rabbi, our greatest teacher. And then those who follow are lesser. But if you go back, the earlier rabbis were the greater rabbis. Mm -hmm. And because they did this, there's a respect for the past in a way that I don't know that we do respect the past. That's a good question. And I, I certainly, again, like thinking about my own work in trying to understand the people I'm writing about, I trust the primary sources. I trust the people who were there. And I, even more so, I put more value on those things they said at the time. So if they were interviewed decades after the events in which they're describing, I give it more skepticism. If it's passed on secondhand from somebody who talked to somebody who was there, still more skepticism. So proximity to the original is key, in, and you have to give that more weight, and you have to try to learn from what was said and done at the time. Right, but I think that there's a difference in writing a biography and culling wisdom that you're going to apply to your life. Big difference. So how do we value what came before us? Let me give you an example of what I'm saying. One of the laws that, uh, that, that's found in Mishpatim has to do with men fighting around a pregnant woman. So men fight, and one of them pushes a pregnant woman, and she falls down, and she miscarries as a result of that jostling. But no other damage ensues. In other words, she uh, miscarries, but she's okay. The one responsible shall be fined the amount that the woman's husband may exact from him. So whatever the husband of the uh, wronged woman is going to demand, the person's going to pay, and that's how they deal with it. But if the woman goes into extremis over this and she dies, then the Torah says that the man who pushed her is guilty of murder. An eye for an eye, tooth for life for a life. So it's a capital crime. The value of the fetus is less than that of the mother. And the Torah doesn't tell us how many weeks or months she was pregnant. No, exactly right. So that becomes the basis for the rabbinic approach to abortion. So if that's the case, in a moment, God forbid, let's say that she is a, it's a breech birth and the mother's life is in danger and they can't turn the baby, the mother's life comes first. And so the fetus would have to be sacrificed in order to save the mother's life. The mother doesn't have a choice. She can't say, please save my baby. I've lived. I want my baby to live. The Torah is telling you, based upon this mm -hmm. interpretation. And so what we start to see is that there's an entire logic and wisdom that's culled from this. But this could only happen if we had a worldview that said, this has value. And we have a tradition that has value. And I'm not at all sure that we are seeing it that way today. Well, we're clearly uh, struggling with that because there's so much debate within our community, within all communities like this about abortion. And as I suggested with my question before, there's, you know, I wanted to know how many months she was pregnant, right? There are all of these more modern ways of judging well, these how issues. many months? Why would that matter? Well, because our laws today have been adapted in a way to embrace that nuance. But what you're saying is that our teachings, our Torah, our values are clear and uncomplicated. And if we, if we accept that, then that becomes our guiding light and not necessarily the, the modern debates over the well, issue. Well, right, but the pro-life people will tell you that almost from the onset, there's a human being in there. It's not just a mass of cells. That's what they're going to tell you. 
But even with that knowledge, the Torah is more interested in the life of the mother than the life of the fetus. But that doesn't mean, by the way, that Judaism is pro-choice. That's a huge mistake to make because the rabbis are not all that open to abortion because of the value of human life. Now, if you think about what I just said, there is a structure of values that I just laid out that kind of flowed right from this, whether it's the value of human life, the value of the mother's life, the value of the fetus. How do we look at that? There's an entire framework of approaching it. If you ask someone, are you pro-choice or pro-life? People are pretty quick to answer that question today. And by the way, that answer is going to have certain residue because people are going to see you in an entirely different light depending on your answer. So in certain circles, if you say I'm pro-choice, they're going to want to have nothing to do with you. And in other circles, if you say I'm pro-life, you're not going to want to have anything to do with you. Right. So we're taking these laws from the Torah and applying them to a very different, very modern world in which politics gets involved, science gets involved, personal experience of what you've been through as a parent, things that the Torah could not possibly have described, and yet we are trying to make it work. We're trying to make these values still relevant to our lives today. Actually, I'm going to push that harder. Okay. Once you get past your choice, whether it's pro-life or pro-choice, if you then pursue the conversation, say, what goes into that? Well, a woman's body is her own, and it's personal choice and this and that. Or, thou shalt not kill. Right? There's a life inside of you, and it's the sanctity of human life. Once you've gotten to that point, what are the implications of those statements? And I'll, I submit to you that we haven't really thought them through. I would agree with that. And if you then say, well, okay, what do you base your thinking on? Are you basing your thinking on Judaism? Probably not. Are you basing your thinking on, I don't know, the New York Times? More likely. What I see in the media, how I look at things. In other words, these are real life choices that have implications about how I value human life. What do I think about it? And can I be more nuanced in my answer? Does that mean that all abortions are forbidden, as what's happening in numbers of states? Right. Or does it mean that all abortions should be allowed, as many people are also advocating? Is there no middle ground? How do we balance this out? Those are real questions. Do we have to answer to anyone on this, or do we have to answer to everyone on this? And because I think we are not looking at these issues in a particularly thoughtful way, and what I mean by that is not that people don't care about it, but to really delineate and have thoughtful conversations about what is the basis for my formulation? What are the implications? What are the boundaries of this argument? I, I think that that's a problem. Yeah, thoughtful conversations are not exactly the strength of our culture today. And um, that's, that's a shame because these are issues that we ought to be able to engage upon. Obviously, there's a lot of, that we have in common, a lot of agreements that we have on issues with the evangelical Christians. They've become very strong in their support of Israel, and yet on abortion, they are dogmatic in their views and absolutely opposed to it in all instances. That's fascinating stuff. We ought to be able to engage and discuss. We should be able to, but in the society in which we live, we become so tribal that what's not happening. And maybe the thing to do is to begin with the text and allow the text to create a baseline so we can talk about that and then move forward. It's a good hope, and I believe Mishpatim is still relevant to us today. Thanks, Jonathan.